welcome to the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and as we always do, after eight and a half years in the octagon, let's say hello <laughs> and welcome to our co-host, Gene Robinson. Hey, Gene. Has it been that long, Patrick? I swear it doesn't seem like it's been more than a couple of years. Oh, no, it has been that long. I, th- I was thinking about it last night. I think we're going to be in the running for the, you know, I was thinking about, you know, you, you see all these first uses for drones. First drone to, you know, carry a churro from wherever. <laughs> and so I was thinking about qualifiers for the podcast. World's first longest runningest podcast with uh, a jerk for a host on Thursday morning at, at 9 a.m. <laughs> Pacific, uh, you know. In a leap year with, uh, you know, whatever. I got to get the qualifiers together because I don't want to put it out there on social media and get shot down. That's not, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. But, yes, it has been that long. And, um, you know, it surprises me. We've talked to a lot of people, and uh, it's hard. It is hard for me to find guests that can, let's say, measure up, you know, um, giants in the field. <laughs> but we got one today. And uh, we'll be bringing him on shortly. But any uh, news stories? I know there's a real shortage of news in the, the, the drone ecosystem, but uh, anything, uh, you know, happen to catch your attention, Gene? You know, uh, what my attention has been uh, diverted to more than anything else the past couple of weeks is the snowmageddon that we went through. And uh, mm. still haven't quite dug out of the snowbank on that one, but uh, you know I'm happy today. I'm going to go out. We're going to we're going to commence our research again over at the Forensics Anthropology Research Facility, you know, affectionately known as the Body Farm. We've got a, another volunteer that wants to participate today. So, uh, you know, getting back to normal is really the, the kind of the high point of my day at this at this juncture. So. You know, it's uh, starting to go out and fly some things and, and do some things myself. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, you got your uh, your your global warming down there. You're overcoming and adapting, yes. which is a um, yes. which is a good thing. I, uh, <laughs> I I know you didn't send it on the uh, the Dak and Pony show. Uh, which I did, and uh, I mean, basically, every time I, I watch these, that uh, let's say I don't even know what to call it, but I watch it. Um, you know, now we're talking about, you know, remember it was sense and avoid, detect and avoid, and, and now it's well yes. clear. So we're we're still talking about the same. You know what 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 is this what is what is this mysterious baseline that we need you know twenty years of data for that we've already had twenty years and we don't know and you know yada yada so it I, it just it makes me sick but you know what are you gonna do um, it, it keeps people working I guess you know this this stuff but why uh, Gene where are you located. Uh, I am just outside of Austin, Texas, Fred. So uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. where Seguin is then. Say again. We have we have dear friends that live in Seguin. Oh, I know exactly where that is, and yes, uh, we weren't we were not prepared for two degrees down here. So <laughs> yeah, we all gathered that. All righty, <laughs> and I hope you have water. So good luck. 
<laughs> well, and then so you know, let's uh, let's bring on our guest is uh, Fred Marks, and he's the founder of FMA Direct. And Fred, uh, for the benefit of the audience, could you please? I know you got a long and a big bio. Uh, you've been around for a long time. Like I said, you're one of the giants of uh, unmanned aircraft systems. But could you please um, give us a, a bio, the high points of uh, what you've been up to for the last couple of years, or your career? Okay. Well, the uh, basically the last couple of years, uh, <laughs> in large measure, have been uh, uh, involved with uh, making a transition from uh, the place where we lived for the last 20 years to move into a retirement home, and what I did was to set up here in the retirement home and we've got an apartment that uh, I was able to have my bedroom also include a, uh, a enough area to have the shop and to have uh, the computer and so forth and we have all the uh, uh, I have a bunch of my electric airplanes which with hopefully COVID coming down uh, I'm going to be able to get back out and start flying them this spring with the uh, the club here in Frederick, Maryland, where we live. Um, the uh, the thing that I've been working on has been, of course, a continuation of what uh, I've been doing with uh, our company. Uh, in 1985, uh, I started a company called FMA Incorporated. That stands for Fred Marks Associates. Uh, and and to, to a degree, and in a sense, you guys are associates of FMA. Uh, <laughs> My two my my two sons have had the uh, this has been able to afford them the if you will the luxury of not having to work for anybody else but themselves for for now going on 40 years and uh, we have uh, made a transition when we started the company in '85 uh, it was as a transition if you will from work that I had done before that uh, when I was a uh, a partner in Booz Allen and Hamilton, uh, where I was the VP in charge of weapon systems. Uh, and I had a whole background in history and all of that that I can get into if you want. But uh, I had been doing design work for a company called Ace Radio Control in Hagensville, Missouri, near Kansas City, uh, designing receivers, servos, the whole six yards, uh, and chargers. In particular, uh, a, a charger for at that time everything was Nike heads, and we had a dual charger that I had designed um, that uh, would handle Nike heads, nickel metal hydrides, and, and so forth. Um, we began. I also had written books uh, that were published by Combach. Uh, one of them, proud to say, uh, sold over half a million copies. It was called The Basics of Radio Control Modeling. And then I wrote another one later that was called the Getting the Most from Your RC Systems. Always remember being at a trade show in Toledo where everybody was marching in lockstep through in front of your booth, and I'm overhearing a conversation between these guys, and the guy says, he didn't care how the system worked just as long as it kept working. <laughs> and, and this is... Uh, this is the kind of thing I think that is there. People uh, have, in the model world, the hobby world, they, they just want to make sure it keeps working. Uh, when we started FMA, uh, and I had opened an office at, uh, at home, and I had, was just coming off of having 
uh, spent three years running a company uh, where I had designed and developed and produced the FQM one one seven B that was is a is a semi scale MiG twenty seven, and we built fifty thousand of them. And I had had an arrangement with the ownership of the company that uh, that they would sell me the company. And once I got in the contracts, they decided it would be more fun to sit there and milk the contract. So I said sayonara, came home and started FMA Incorporated in May of 1985, and then proceeded to uh, switch my allegiance in terms of drones, or targets, if you will, to Carl Goldberg Models in Chicago. By this time, unfortunately, sadly, Carl had died, uh, but uh, I worked with the people, his, his children, who owned the company, and redesigned all the system. Uh, and I've found out this week, uh, this is one of the things that's part of the joy of the work we've done over the years. Uh, we'd had a visit three years ago from a fellow who was working in Huntsville, and he and I were working on a, a design of a new charging and uh, battery pack system for Raven. And he called me because he was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, working on a new project. And he found out that they uh, they had about 30 of those, uh, those Carl Goldberg, Mark, they, the MiGs there. I thought they'd all been shot up. But uh, there are apparently still some of them around the world. We had we flew that airplane at uh, around 30 different places around the world. I had a team that I would send everywhere. It went from Korea to to uh, Germany and the Middle East, wherever. <clears throat> then uh, I had moved, we moved on after I started FMA and our, our participation in drones, if you will, or targets, uh, shifted to uh, do the design of the radio system, a complete radio system, a new one at 200, 200 to 300 megahertz. For uh, a company in Hagen or in Huntsville, uh, Alabama, for a program called Outlaw, and we still have an affiliation with that program all these years later. Uh, and uh, because, for one thing, they're only allowed to fly on 25 megahertz in Korea, mm. so we still building stuff from technology that was is now 30 years or more old. Uh, and that's kind of where uh, and FMA Direct uh, made a transition. And in 2002, we went to, uh, I, was, I found out about and learned about the lithium batteries, lithium polymers that were called then and still, still are there, from a company in Korea and arranged a, a contract with them to represent uh, and promote by the, the batteries here. And, uh, and then I think it's 2003 or four. Uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be awarded a uh, by a, a, a Man of the Year award for I'm looking at it here for significant and continuing contributions to the RC industry by Integrated Electronics for Radio and Flight Stabilization. That was because of Copilot and the work on the uh, on the lithium batteries. All right. Well, let's, and the let's, thing let's, that was the thing that was the right. uh, stop me if I'm running over, Patrick. Well, I do want to. We we got a lot of t- a lot of stuff to unpack there, but go ahead and finish this thought. Okay, the thought there was that uh, one of the things we found out early on was a, a quite a 
quite an impact was that uh, how how volatile the lithium batteries were, and that particular <laughs> that particular thing came to to, to light uh, very sharply and worldwide when a uh, somebody loaded up a whole pallet of these lithium batteries, lithium polymer batteries, and they were sitting on a dock in, uh, in Japan uh, at the airport, and. Some turkey came along and drove a forklift, <laughs> drove the tines on a forklift through, the, through that, that uh, pile full of batteries. And by the time they got through burning, they had burned through two concrete floors about 12 inches thick all the way to the bottom of the facility. And this, this got worldwide attention. So we're sharply aware of the liability that was involved in handling those batteries. And we could not get the manufacturer of ourselves to uh, come up with a, a decent charger. They tried, and we worked with uh, one of the biggest outfits in Korea who does electronics, still big name to this day, and what they came up with didn't work. So I came up with a concept that, we, that I call the bypass charger. And that's where you began to see and hear of uh, batteries that have taps on them. You bring out a tap from each cell, right. and you're in, in rotation. You're checking the voltage of each cell, and if you're not supposed to exceed 4.2 volts per cell, when you get to 4.2 volts on a given cell, it bypasses by switching on a a, a unijunction that has almost zero impedance at the, uh, when it's turned on so that you ripple through until you've charged each one of them. That has become known as a balancing charger. And we began to focus on that, and that's kind of what FMA has become uh, starting in, in 2002. And, of course, we were continuing to manufacture the co-pilot. Uh, we kind of, by that time, from 85 to 2002, had our whole business had been primarily the hobbyist and primarily the radios and the co-pilot. Uh, we made that transition, and now we've been at this uh, with the, uh, the things that you see on site, and I think some of what you pointed out, things that you own, the chargers. Right, and right. the thing we're proudest of right now is the newest charger that we have is the one that, uh, that <laughs> I kiddingly tell everybody was designed for old guys like me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I use all of our chargers, but when I have to, uh, when I haven't done a charge for a while on the, on a PL8, I have to go back and kind of relearn what what buttons you need to push and which way. And exactly. the thing about the new technology that we have that we call bump is you have you put a bump tag, you you, you measure with the charger, and uh, it gives you the bump tag, and you stick that on all the packs that are of that same nature. And from then on, all you have to do is bump the pack against the charger. It automatically sets up everything and automatically charges it for you. Well, and that's kind of a big thing. The more recent oh. thing is that we've, we've uh, transitioned to doing this for a military program, and we have uh, a military-qualified, uh, we'll do 12S, and also we'll do up to 50 amps of charging. And that's kind of the thing we're pushing now. 
Well, let's you know. So let's unpack some of this stuff because it was uh, there's a lot there, and I like the foolproof charger because I know a fool who needs foolproof stuff. Um, so you know, this it's funny as you know we were kind of talking about that with the podcast and people's you know drone. This is the first drone that did, you know did whatever. So uh, drones aren't really. A lot of people believe that drones are new, and 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 drones aren't really that new. Um, they've they've been around for a while, and uh, you know world proliferation and all the rest. Of I that. I can address that a little bit, Patrick, because I worked on <laughs> one of the very early ones. Of course, the earliest drones, if you want to call them that, were radio control models that were developed in the 30s right. by the Good Brothers for their PhD, and then they uh, they fell on the. Uh, uh, Reginald Denny was an actor in Hollywood, and mm-hmm. he started a company. He got interested in, in uh, radio control and in airplanes, and developed uh, what they call the Denny plane. That uh, was that was a, actually the first operational drone that was a, designed to be a drone. Uh, when I got involved, and when I finished college in '57. I went to work for Fairchild in Hagerstown, and one of the earliest programs that I worked on is probably one that very few people have ever heard of. It was called the WS-123A Bull Goose, and it was the, it was a, uh, a decoy that was to fly with B-47s in over Russia, and it was a it was a it was a full scale drone. It was it was a pretty good sized airplane, jet engine powered. Uh, and I worked on that for a time, and then uh, the next drone, drone that came along was uh, there were a series of five of them done by the Army, and the one that we worked on was called the ANUSD-5. Uh, it, it was powered by a J-65 jet engine and weighed 12,000 pounds. Not exactly lightweight. No, we're small, that, yes. That drone had in it the genesis of what now is uh, goes into practically every drone that anybody's building in the terms of a, a flight and an inertial navigation system, uh, a MEMS that is a you know tiny fraction of an ounce. Our original INS done by Honeywell was uh, over a, over a cubic foot and weighed over 100 pounds. <laughs> Not exactly lightweight, but we also had the sensors that would. If at any drone today, we had a side-looking airborne radar. We also had a forward-looking infrared. Uh, and the thing that's happened is that the concept was there, the idea, but over the years, what technology has done for all that is is just fantastic. In fact, you've gone from 100 and some pounds to uh, a system that weighs a fraction of an ounce for that does a better job of stabilizing than we could with that. But there was one story I wanted to tell you about that, if you'll ride with me. We were flying out of Yuma, Arizona. I used to go to Yuma from back in the 59 to 62 period. I had spent a a week, a month in Yuma uh, to sign off on engineering on the SD-5. And we we made our first flight with the inertial nav system and we took off from Yuma, and we flew to uh, Fort Huachuca, which is uh, mm-hmm. south of uh, Tucson. And uh, we had a mapping camera on board. 
and we had a great a guy who was really good with camera with cameras and all that stuff. And he'd taken all the photos from that and laid them out on the wall of a hangar. And those, with the inertial nav guiding that thing, you, know, you want to talk about DVLOS, <laughs> the, he laid the pictures down edge to edge to edge to edge. And all the way to Fort Huachuca, there was absolutely no shift one way or the other. You, the edges lined up right down the line. Until we got to Fort Huachuca and made the turn around the flagpole and started heading back. And then we, because of the technology that was there then, we began to get drift in the uh, inertial nav system, such that by the time we got halfway back to Yuma, we were within six miles of the Mexican border. And the, the chase pilot had to take over the airplane and the drone and fly it back in. Well, but that but, drone went, uh, that one, we spent $85 million bucks on that one, and then finally got canceled in in, uh, in 63. So moving on from there, I, you know, I went went to work for, uh, on, a, on, a, uh, on the first uh, uh, satellite communication system here in the local, local area, moved to Washington. And then uh, from there, I went to Booz Allen Hamilton, where I worked on all kinds of different projects and programs, and uh, some of those were drones. In fact, they were, of course, they were all called targets. And I led a study on several different aspects of that, uh, one of them being to get all three services uh, laughingly to come together <laughs> and uh, elect to have some three or so drone or targets that everybody could use, and of course they all signed off on a uh, an agreement when we got done with all that. <laughs> and then, kind of like it has been with uh, with SUAS, everybody proceeded to go off in their own direction. <laughs> never, never, fo- never followed any of the recommendations. <laughs> so. Right, and I want to get into that because uh, so you know the one and one other thing I wanted to touch on in your year when you were down there in uh, beautiful Yuma, which must have been really even more desolate in the late fifties and early sixties. I was there in uh, two thousand ten eleven time, and it was desolate and barren and out in the middle of nowhere. But the time you guys were flying around the flagpole, there was no GPS, so all of the uh, navigation was on board, correct? Or did you use any yes, like radio? Absolutely. Well, it was the Honeywell INS. Otherwise, it was a uh, it was manual. In other words, you could track it. You could track it. It was stabilized, uh, and you could track it on radar, and you know, give a direction and so forth. But we always had a uh, we always had a chase plane with an F one hundred chase plane with the uh, drone. Just in case, but. Uh... And I know you were on some other stuff too. We were talking the other day offline, and you were telling me you worked with. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny because every couple of years we see, you know, oh these lighter than air cargo, you know, aircraft, and it's a new idea, and this is going to revolutionize, which it's not, because you know, I mean, I've been on programs where we had these heavy lifters that never got off the ground, but you were saying you worked with. Uh, Piasecki on a heavy lift lighter than air aircraft. For our, our that region. was that was near um, late late seventies, near the eighties, uh, and we had I had a contract that I had won from uh, NASA Ames, and that was to do a study of the applica- applicability of the use of uh, 
heavy they fly to an air. And the idea there was you have a, a, a helium uh, dirigible, if you will, and built onto that underneath and was a structure, a bed frame almost, with a uh, helicopter rotor on each corner. And we were using, of course, the drive system with the uh, rotors and so forth from uh, what had been, of course, Vertol, which was originally Piasecki. And Frank Piasecki was involved in what we were doing. And he was obviously very interested in this. We examined some six different applications for uh, heavy lift lighter than there in various sizes. If you think about it for a moment, there is a, a wonderful place that uh, that would just fit like a, a glove, and that's in Africa, southern Africa, where you have the wet season. And when you got the wet season, you can grow all kinds of stuff. You just can't move it anywhere because all the streams are full up and uh, all the roads are mud. So if you have a heavy lift lighter than there, you could transport all of that back and forth. So that's one great application. Another one that we looked at and uh, actually went to uh, Saskatchewan and met with them uh, is another situation where uh, an HLH just fits wonderfully, and that's when you're, you're drilling in the tundra. Uh, in the wintertime, it's frozen so hard you can't drill or do anything else. And then in the rainy season, it's it's mud 10 feet deep. So what the... Uh, province wanted to do was to uh, see if you could use HLH to transport the uh, drilling equipment and all that in, which you just, you know, when it was muddy, you just couldn't do it. Uh, And so Frank actually built and sold to them two of the HLHs that they then used operationally for a time. Of course, once we finished the job, uh, and showed the utility of all of it. Uh, that was the end of our participation. And I, I was at Booz Allen then. Uh, but the uh, the thing is, there's still a great application for that. And uh, but it's like everything else. Uh, somebody has to pick it up and and do something with it. And there's there's no doubt about it that you could do the same thing with that thing made as a drone and then various you can do it in lots of sizes i see some people are doing work with that now right right well i mean that's an interesting story but let's i, I gotta roll back because i do want to talk you know about some of the products you talked about live poly and and you know that's that's really a lot of things happened around the early 2000s and that's even like when i met gene and whatever else but the, the live poly technology uh, and then brushless motors and whatever kicked off what I called uh, the electric revolution in uh, aircraft, model aircraft, drones, whatever you want to call it. And because uh, before that, we were on the NICADs for a few minutes, and it was just kind of a pain in the butt. And also the the gas aircraft. Um, I didn't, I really, you know, remember the old Groucho line, like, I don't want to be a member of a club that would have anyone like me as a member. That was kind of my, my my thing with the AMA and go out there and, you know, sit all day and wait for your time to fly or whatever. But the Lipoly was like, hey, I could just go right over here to the high school or the park or wherever. And I could go fly my plane. And, um, and, and that was 
really a beautiful thing, and and I think really uh, you know made unmanned aircraft and and RC obvious to let's say available to the masses. And you guys were making batteries and chargers. And then I want to I want to get into a little bit too because we were talking a little bit about the uh, other product you guys made, which was the Copilot. And right. A lot, a lot of people like to say, oh, you know, drones are new. There were no there were no autopilots and there was no automation prior to say like 2008 or nine, uh, maybe even 10 when, uh, the website do it yourself drones opened up and they were like, Oh, you know, this is all new. We're, we're making autopilots and everything else, which was just not true. Um, and a lot of the, their early work, um, was riding on the coattails of the co-pilot. You, you want to, uh, discuss some of that? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, the quick answer to all that is, well, in 1980 to uh, 1990, uh, we built 100,000 drones, called the MiG-27. Right. Uh, and those were all, you know, radio-controlled. Uh, you didn't have to because they were all line of sight. You, you just put them up, and they live maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds, to up to a minute before they got shot to pieces. But it was a drone and uh it was it had it could carry twelve pounds. And in fact one of the things that was done uh as people were looking at Mastiff as they took uh the people who had been done my flying when I was at Tech Serve, Steve Stricker was one of them, I guess most of you know of Steve. And a fellow by the name of Big Green uh worked with me and uh they were great absolutely great pilots. And uh, they moved on to AAI in uh, Cockeysville when working on the Mastiff, and they came up with a simulation in which they took the uh, MiG-27, put landing gear on it, and loaded it up to 30 pounds. <laughs> this is an airplane normally is flying it weighs less than 10 pounds. They loaded it up to 30 pounds to simulate or emulate the handling characteristics of a massive, which that, that, that tells you how maneuverable <laughs> a massive is. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't need to be maneuverable. It just needs to be stable. An airplane flew just fine, but it took an awful lot of runway to get it off. Um, the, uh, so it's, now you're right. Drones are not new. Uh, not at all. Uh, of course, if you consider them that, you know, we've really been build, building drones or radio call radio control models for 70 years before that. Right. Um, well, the co-pilot, though, gave, you know, uh, people – I remember, you know, people – I mean, I, I have one, and I put it on a larger unmanned aircraft that I was using for uh, aerial photography. And back in the day, this is the other thing, you know, people like, oh, I'm a, you know, aerial photographer, mapper guy, and blah, blah, blah. And you were discussing about the gentleman that helped you out flying to, um, you know, doing the flagpole in Huachuca. And I'm sure Gene will uh, remember this because that was another thing that kind of really put the peanut butter and the chocolate together. Like the Reese's peanut butter cup was the uh, digital photography. But you probably remember, Gene, like the holy grail of getting the blur out of your pictures. And, you know, I mean, I had to design and build my own, uh, let's say, gimbal or camera mount. So I could get these photos or get a higher percentage of usable photos, but the, the co-pilot helped, uh, if you used the co-pilot, would help uh, you stay on the horizon. 
Do you remember that, Gene? Do I remember it? I man, if you'll recall, I manufactured the Spectra Flying Wing, which everybody said you you can't you can't use a flying wing to loft the camera. It's not stable enough. It's not this. It's not that. It'll never carry a cargo. Well, we proved that wrong. And then when Fred came out with a co-pilot, yeah, you talk about peanut butter and chocolate. You could put that sucker on a Spectra, and it was so solid that uh, a lot of my blur went away using the co-pilot once you established your flight path and it started shooting pictures man it, it was a champ yeah well maybe maybe you uh, could uh before the uh we got on to the uh the podcast uh fred was telling us how the technology worked and uh so you know maybe you could give us the cliff's notes version for the benefit of the listeners how the the, the, co- the technology and how the co-pilot worked fred okay it's uh based on uh we we, uh, we we didn't steal anything, but we did utilize technology that, that of course, you and I and all us taxpayers had paid for uh, through NASA for use for stabilization of satellites. And what it does is you've got an infrared sensor that points toward deep space, and the other sensor, of course, points toward the center of the Earth. And you're measuring the differential and infrared return. And, of course, what you're doing is you're zeroing that, and if it begins to vary one way or the other as the airplane pitches or rolls or moves about, you you get a signal then that you can use, of course, and amplify, modify, and you ultimately can tie that in, as we did, to uh, bias the drive to the, the uh, servos to keep the airplane stable. Uh, the only, the only, uh, I guess, stiff requirement in all of it is you have to have the sensors uh, sitting where you can see the, you know, can, can see out. You can't, you can't completely lock it into the, uh, to the uh, airplane inside where it can't see. So it has to have a visual line of sight to the outside world. But once you've done that, then. Uh, of course, the idea originally with the co-pilot is we were doing it so it would help people learn to fly uh, who just didn't know how to fly otherwise. And you yeah, could well, take that. And, and uh, the uh, Gene thing, uh, I, don't, I don't remember exactly the, the time frame, but uh, one of the things we had done was that we had done a flying wing earlier that uh, we called the Razor. And it was a molded foam airplane. Uh, and I that grew out of the work we done. I done on the on the MIG. We and we used the same company, and came up with the you know the the airplane itself, and had them molding it. And this is of course kind of the problem like we run into with everything. I guess these days, uh, we were using a company that was located at uh, Dallas Airport, right near Dallas. And I had a guy there who was the absolute best uh, foam design engineer I've ever seen. And he was so good at this and so successful, a larger company in Pittsburgh bought them out. And then they were producing for us the razor. And we produced it for several years. Oh, he sold several thousand of them. And uh, then when we wanted to make another run of them, it turns out that company had been bought out by somebody in Sweden. All this sounds familiar. Yes. <laughs> and when we went back to them to get a quote, they came back to us with a price that was 
with uh, about three times the sale price of our whole airplane. So we decided that that wasn't going to work. No, uh, no, and that kind of no. ended that ended what we were doing with that. But you could take a you could take a razor and put a copilot on it and do just as you were talking about. It made it stable as a rock. Uh, yeah. And the and well, the copilot uh, opened up the whole world. And I think, as Patrick points out, for uh, drones. The other thing that happened in in the same era was that there, there were, were actually three things that made things really go to make this transition from RC models to drones. One was the, uh, of course, the LiPo battery. The right. second one was the co-pilot. And the third one was the brushless motors. Right, right. Uh, I mean, you can all remember uh, when we were using brushed motors and uh, big old brushed motor uh, could handle maybe 10 amps or 20. And then you make the <laughs> With jump. With NICAD batteries. With NICAD yeah. batteries. And, uh, so then when we made that, by the way, there was one, one background story there. When I was first testing the LiPo batteries, uh, I'm not sure that I mentioned that in anything I've written so far, but uh, Frank Finale was the, the editor of Flying Models up in New Jersey. And we always dearly love Frank. He's a great friend. And we went up to visit him, and I took along my Senior Falcon, and I had equipped that. Bus. We still didn't have the brushless motor yet, even. We were still flying it with regular brush motor. And uh, I had a, the very best, the latest in nickel metal hydride batteries in that thing. And uh, I also had then to, to plug in the same place the, uh, a, a four cell LiPo battery. 3.3 ampere hours, and we took off with the airplane with the nickel metal hydride. It was actually actually had to land in three minutes, right. and the battery was so hot you couldn't touch it. Unplugged that, plugged in the lipo yep. battery, took off, and without even having to worry about running out running out of power, flew for ten minutes and landed, and the battery was was cool. And that yeah, it was a- that. That, the idea of transitioning to the LiPo batteries, of having brushless motors, having the speed controllers and so forth that went with the brushless motors, uh, and the co-pilot gave us the basis for what a lot of people were doing with it. I, I, will, I will say that I have one regret. We got so involved with everything else we were doing, the chargers and all these other things, that we kind of, I uh, hate to admit it, but we... We just kind of left things with the co-pilot and did not make the transition at FMA to get into the uh, into the MIMS. Uh, we could have done that to get right. into MIMS and, the, and that stabilization system. However, I think the the results are almost axiomatic. Uh, all that stuff went off to the to the far east. It did, and you that's know. another story, but. You know, we're we're down to five minutes. This happens quick, and uh, okay. And, and, and I mean, it always does. Just we get rolling, and it just starts going. But I wanted to get, and I'm going to give you like three minutes or so to go on about. You were on the uh, the FAA set up the small UAS arc, which gave us the Part 107, um, and then we got the standards work thing and all the rest of that. I'd like you to give the audience some reflections from your participation on the arc. 
is where I met you, and I was back 2008-9. And then some of the uh, standards work with ASTM, if you can fit it in, and I'm going to give you three minutes. Go. Okay. Patrick and I were on the uh, ARC. Uh, the people from FAA finally began to see the light with regard to the utility of drones, I guess, or because we were driven to it, and came to our shop and visited for a full day in 2008. In January 2009, they asked me to serve on the ARC, <clears throat> and Patrick and I both showed up there, and Patrick and I... And the guy from F- another, another rep from FAA or from from AMA, Rich, were, uh, uh, Rich, that was, uh, that was uh, Hanson, Rich, Rich Hanson. Hanson. Yep. Yeah. So the three of us were we were uh, you know we were we were getting shot at by the Indians, and everybody <laughs> else was involved in all this. When we were gonna we were gonna set up like six subcommittees. Uh, committees that were going to handle various aspects like training, like licensing, uh, and they had asked me to, to handle C2, command and control. So, uh, and everybody was, they, they put up a <laughs> on a blackboard, you had to go up and sign in or sign up to serve on somebody's committee. And uh, <laughs> I found out I had a lot of people behind me, way behind me. When I looked around, I was the only one. Nobody else volunteered to serve on C2. So, um, and Pat, of course, you were, your involvement was uh, was you were representing the people who were flying helicopters and actually using them as drones already, you know, the early drones. Yeah, the Arcad. And we took an awful beating around the head and shoulders because we basically were three against 17. Exactly. And... Uh, but but I felt overall that what we did come up with, if it had been implemented without somebody yanking it around and screwing it over, we could have had early on, and by, by 2010, we could have had a drone program, a drone activity, a drone business here in the United States. I can and instead, we had all this niggling and niggling and all these people picking at us all. And, you know, I just think about it for a moment. I won't pick on everybody, but let's just say you look at the guys who were with the Airline Pilots Association. They had absolutely no interest in ever seeing a drone, nor did AOPA, nor did any of these other people. So it was a, it was a battle royal from the word to go. But we did come up with what we agreed was a reasonable requirement that if you're going to fly a drone... Uh, if you're going to have an ownership or design, produce a drone, or use it, that uh, you needed to follow a set of standards. And the standards that was agreed then would be by FAA arranged this, it would be done by ASDM, American Society for Testing and Materials. And, of course, Patrick and I were on that and other people and several other people who had been on the ARC uh, also. But we were not permitted to chair any of those committees in ASDM if we had chaired that committee beforehand. Well, going back a little bit, when we were doing the work on the ARC, it was it was discovered, or we told them, of course, that 70% of all failures in, in, their, in model airplanes or drones or whatever uh, came from batteries. 
So we decided we really ought to have a standard for batteries. So we, I wrote that in. I got people to help and pull that into the C2 recommendations. And then it was agreed that they should have a standard, not just for C2, but a separate one for uh, batteries. Uh, and since I had not, I was not chairing the C2, I was asked to chair that right up on batteries. And uh, we met Patrick and other people at Conshohock in Pennsylvania and held a, I guess it was a two-day meeting and uh, discussed all of these and went away. And again, I got no volunteers for work on the battery, so I rounded up a group of pretty sterling people uh, that helped me write the standard for the batteries. And to my knowledge, I think, I'll ask Patrick to back me up on this, is to my knowledge, I think that standard was the only one ever uh, incorporated in anything with FAA, and it's also incorporated around the world. They did the thing I don't, reference. The thing that I don't see is I don't see people going out and buying batteries to use in drones that meet that standard. Uh, you can fill me in more on that, but... I'll, 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 I think I've used my time. Yes, we are. We technically ran long, so the, the show ended, but we it's still recording, and uh, so for posterity, people will be able to listen to it. But um, the standards thing, I'm really, uh, you know, you did talk about the ARC stuff and the different committees, and I remember I was on three different committees, and I do, I actually still have all the notes I took. They weren't great notes, but I do have all the notes from the ARC in my file cabinet that someday I'd like to incorporate in a book when I uh, have time, the memoirs, but uh, the committee work, I was on uh, the commercial, I was on uh, uh, AMA, which was a total disaster, and one other committee, and between the work uh, of the three committees, it was a full-time job uh, when we were doing the ARC. I mean, I, I was oh, on yeah. calls yeah. Four, four days a week, I was on conference calls almost all day. And I don't think that uh, I, well, I know that people don't um, know that about the, the rule when it finally came out. I mean, huge commitment, um, especially uh, for people who, like if you worked for AeroVironment, and I'll throw them right under the bus, whatever, you worked for AeroVironment, you were getting paid. If you worked for, um, you know, AOPA or ALPA, those people were getting paid. And I do think that that's right. another thing to uh, to hit on because you talked about that. You know, these people, I mean, a lot of people now, AOPA is trying to, you know, tell people that they're, oh, we're friends with the droner, you know, but that is not the case. In 2005, it was AOPA that threw us right under the bus to the FAA and said, you got to do something. These guys want to use uh, model aircraft for commercial purposes, uh, something's got to be done about the, these hobbyists are everywhere flying, and this is dangerous, and we want something done right now. So uh, that was that was what was behind the uh, the policy clarification, and all of the work that was done. And I remember too, even AUVSI, and we didn't even get into the groups really, but even AUVSI, the guy that they sent was Mike Fagan, I think was his name, uh, was a startup company he was running, Logos or whatever. And uh, he's like, hey, man, this is a full-time job, and I can't really afford to be there. And, and uh, AUVSI said, well, you know, tough beans, we're not paying you, which, you know, I'm like, well, I mean, you know, somebody here has got to – I mean, I, it cost me a lot of money personally, and I'm sure uh, Gene remembers back in the early days of our Kappa, lots of work with the proposed rules yes. and the standards hours. and the tests, hours and hours and hours of work that we did, uh, you know, pro bono and not that – 
you know, it's jeans going for sainthood. But we thought it was that. And then, we get, and then we get thrown onto the bus. <laughs> exactly. You know, and you hit on the, that point. That's the whole business of this, uh, of what Mike might bitch about all of this is that uh, we say, oh, you've got to be a capitalist. You know, you've got to go out there and compete with the whole world with your very, very limited resources and the kind of dozen or so people working for you. Uh, at the same time, we go out and uh, we uh, have fund every uh, major uh, defense contractor by giving them 5% of, of the value of every contract that they can use for what's called IR&D, in-house research and development. Nobody else can access that information. It's theirs. It's like they own it, and they're being paid. And, and here's Boeing receiving all that. At the same time, they're bitching and hollering that uh, in France they're, uh, they're subsidizing Airbus. Yes, well, <laughs> there's, you know, it's, it's funny how that all works, but even that, so, you know, there were a lot of uh, issues with that, and then moving on to the standards work, and you made another good point that we could have definitely, I, I don't even think the policy clarification thing in 2007 was even necessary. They could have gone along and worked on this stuff while that was happening, and the NAS would have been a safer place. I think you would have had that uh, aviation culture of safety would have been in drones and things. That FAA shot themselves in the foot on that one, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I want to talk about the standards work a little bit, too, because uh, I participated in the standards work. And, uh, you know, I uh, stomped off because, uh, you know, I'm one of these guys. The standards work, was it's been going on since, uh, I think, even before, I mean, 2005, I think – RTCA was even going before that with the SE203 and all the rest of that. So you had multiple standards groups. You had the ARC. You had uh, all these different works. I was on conference calls all day, every week, all week long, and then traveling and going to these, and I wasn't getting paid for it. Uh, it I mean, it was the, the workload was crazy. And then if you missed one of the meetings, you know, um, like I was the guy that gave the first crack on the, uh, on the manual standard. And I said it had to be boilerplate, and so any Joe Bag of Donuts could, you know, fill it in and, you know, do it, whatever. And I missed a meeting, and uh, Ted Wears Banowski from Aero Environment rewrote the standard. And it talked about Mills Standard 3001 manual, and, you know, which, you know, going back to your thing where the taxpayers paying uh, uh, these these weapons contractors to, to write all this stuff. I mean, I got the manual. It's like 450 pages long on how to write a manual, the Mill Standard 2001. It got totally <laughs> out of control. Um, you know, the work's been going on for 16 years. Uh, there's tons of standards out there, and it's still not good enough. So the, the, the what torrent for me was when they said that they were going to use standards in the 107 rule. And if you wanted to see what was in the standards before the rule came out and was in the, in the register, national register and all the rest of that, you had to pay the 75 bucks to read the standards. I'm like, this, this is insanity. Well, this is, you know, America. And I'm, I got to pay 75 bucks to read what's going to be in the law. I mean, are you people insane? And I don't know if you remember Jeff uh, Goldfinger. Uh, I I, I I remember being in a parking lot in front of the waffle stop, yelling and screaming on a call to him about this concept of the seventy-five dollars. But I'm like, this is the most un-American thing I've ever heard of, you know. And I can't be a party to this madness. I'm out of here. Have a nice day. So, 
you know, when the people go, we got to get to the standards, it's like, eh, I've already been there, done that, and I'm not doing it. One other thing I wanted to talk about, though, was the, uh, I, you're like a life member of A&A, correct? Yeah, well, I've been, since 1959, that's almost alive. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been a little while, you know. Um, <laughs> But, uh, I mean, I don't know, what do you, I mean, so what we've seen in the, uh, let's say, um, since the art days in the AMA, do you have any thoughts on that? I really haven't, uh, I'm, basically, I have, have, my feeling has been that uh, AM, AMA screwed up from the word go on it all. They would not, uh, would not go along with what I had suggested. I was coming into all of this having chaired the frequency committee that went out and got 78 frequencies for us to use that really built this industry, the radio control industry. And, and, and yet I couldn't get anybody there to listen to anything I had to say because the, the, the thing I found with AMA over the years is this, if you haven't been involved and been a contest director and been a VP or something, uh, where I just didn't have time to get involved in all that stuff. Well, it was a hobby for me. So what happened was that uh, once this all came down, uh, it didn't make much sense to me. I had told them what they really ought to do is convince the FAA that we had our own set of regulations, uh, which basically we did. You know right. your safety committee and so forth, and that uh, and, and AMA AMA is not an enforcement organization. Right. What they should have done was simply to offer a FAA to cooperate with them in whatever regulation we came up with, and if you had a modeler who was refusing to follow our requirements, our AMA requirements. Then you could turn him over to the FAA, and they could go after him. Right. And they just, instead of doing that, they just kept dinking with all this and piddling and piddling. And I have not really felt inclined to get much involved with what they have been doing since then. Because basically, right. I don't think they're really accomplishing anything. No, and I, uh, you know, I, I, not me even just personally, but other folks too, I know if I keep tipping them off on these different, um, let's say, lines in the sand. You know, one of them was the, the repeal of 336 or even the registration uh, task farce and all that. It's like, they're coming for you. Here's the plan. Tipping them off. And they just chuckled every time they just chuckled. No, no, we talked to the FAA and, uh, you know, we, we got it handled and we made a deal with them, and uh, we're just basically where we're at uh, today. And it's, it's really too sad. It's sad because I, I think of uh, all of the kids that will miss out on the magic. Yeah. Actually, there's another facet of this whole thing, uh, Patrick, and that was uh, the people who came to talk to me at uh, in 2008. They were modelers as well as mm -hmm. working for FAA, and they were good guys. Uh, they're no longer involved anywhere in the program at all. They, you know, they got they got wiped out of it. It's the people who are uh, political orientation who, who got involved. And uh, I have, don't know any of the people who are running the stuff at FAA now. But I, all I know is the guys that I have dealt with are they're they're no longer involved in any way at all. No, yeah. 
Exactly. And that was one other thing we did talk about the other day um, offline. And maybe, you know, I know we're way long now, but uh, and before we do that, uh, what's what's the uh, the website address for FMA Direct? www.fmadirect.com. Okay, we got that out of the way. The last thing I wanted to talk about, because that is true. Anybody that, I, any, in my experience with the FAA, anyone that had a passion for the technology or flight, out of here. You're gone. Uh, and, there was, and that's been since the beginning of uh, my participation in the 20 years. But anyway, you're right. It's got to be political. But the last thing I wanted to talk about, the other day offline, we were talking and you were telling me about an instance where you were in on a program where you were certifying a uh, twin engine. I think it was a jet. Am I, am I correct? And you were you were kind yeah, of talking turbo about jet, yeah turboprop. Okay, turboprop. And you were talking. Uh, you were telling me what it was like, what the certification process was like at the time. And then, so maybe for the benefit of the listeners, we can kind of go in the way back machine. And this was in the '60s, wasn't it? The actually, I did, worked on the F-27A in 1959 through '62. Okay. Uh, we uh, the, the version I worked on was called the F-27A. The original airplane was the Fokker F-27. Okay. And uh, Fairchild had bought the rights to that airplane here in the United States. The F-27A version moved from the Rolls-Royce Dart 6 engine to the Rolls-Royce Dart 7 and had a different prop system and so forth. Uh, and we had to go, we went through a certification uh, process that that then CAA uh, carried on. Uh, and the first thing that you had to do was get the engines calibrated. So and you had to instrument the airplane completely. And I uh, I took a crew to Las Vegas uh, throughout the month of January 1959. Uh, and in '59. Uh, we flew 178 single-engine climbs over Lake Mead, did a total of 48 uh, takeoff and landings and accelerate stops at the McCarran Field uh, with the airplane. And we, on every one of these, every bit of this, all the way, there was always a guy uh, from FAA there. And we had people in plant uh, from FAA or CAA that uh, monitored everything you did. Uh, and, of course, the, kick, the real kicker there is you come along and say, oh, Boeing, it's all right. Uh, we won't do that anymore. You can uh, certify everything. Uh, the test pilot, the co-pilot on every flight uh, that we flew was uh, FAA. And we also had always had an observer on board from FAA, except on those flights where it was going to be something that was uh, too dangerous. In which, in which case, old Watashi was always on board. <laughs> and the, uh, uh, I had had the airplane completely instrumented, front to back, top to bottom, and we had, we had runway cameras that we'd gotten from FAA in Kansas City. And did, we did, uh, did our, most of our work at uh, McCarran Field in uh, Las Vegas. Well, everything that we did was, uh, and, and of course, everything we were doing back in the plant was monitored by somebody from CAA. Uh, and I, I'll take just, I'll take just a second here. <laughs> the fellow who was our, who was monitoring us, his name was, 
M. Edward Gatiss, and he had a, he had this big leather briefcase that he carried all the time. It said M. E. Gatiss as initial. <laughs> And I had a wonderful, wonderful friend who worked in flight tests, had this great, great sense of humor. Ed was this little tiny guy, and he comes marching in the flight test one day, <laughs> walking down the aisle, and, and Alfie runs over, shakes his head, and says, How? Me, Alfie. Me, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, they, they, everything was was monitored very carefully by CAA, and they've just abrogated all that now and thrown it out the window. Uh, they just uh, the the thing that the other thing that's bothersome with me with regard to FAA is that <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm going to be crass here, Patrick, <laughs> with this nonpartisan bullshit. <laughs> it it doesn't make any difference who's the president, who's the administration, or whoever. It all goes on the same forever. Well, you know, I, it, but it, it sounds like there was a lot less room for shenanigans because the dude said, No, right you there. couldn't he, fiddle with any of it. I mean, somebody's watching you all the time. And they knew what they were doing, too, right? They weren't bureaucrats. And they did. Were. They did. Uh, <laughs> there was one of them, as there is an interesting uh, tidbit of sidebar. Um, when we were going to do accelerate stop, uh, what you had to do, I had control of the power on the airplanes. I had a, everything was instrumented, and I could set up the power so I knew exactly how much thrust we were generating. We would set up at the end of the runway and run the engines up, and I would stabilize them. And when I said go, they'd go down the, down the line. And uh, it was to be an accelerate stop, so you were to accelerate the V1, and then the uh, co-pilot, or our pilot, was to simulate a failure by pulling the throttle back on one engine, like you'd lost an engine. And when he did that, and he hit the brakes, we had on this the, the uh, braking system, we didn't have a hydraulic system, it was a Doughty Rotol uh, pneumatic system for the airplane, and uh, we had what we called decelostats in each wheel, where the the brakes on the main gear, and if you got anything, if the wheel started to come to a stop, like you were going to skid, this would release the air. And what happened? Unbe- unbelievably, is that when would why would happen then? Uh, we're going to make this run, and I'm I bring the power up, and the, the power operator lets a, a, a Western Airlines DC six taxi right out to the edge of the runway that we were going to be going down. I mean, here we are. We're going to do an accelerate stop, which is you know, dangerous. And he said this guy pulled within six foot of the end of the runway, edge of the runway. We started down the runway, hit V1, Bob pulls the throttle back on the, uh, on the, in this case, the right engine, because these were counter-rotating engines. They rotated to the left, they're British engines. And uh, when he did, it was a piece of dirt got stuck in the decelostat on the right one. <laughs> Next thing you hear is the tire blows, right? <laughs> and, you know, well, we've lost both tires on the right side. And, uh, and I'm, I'm yelling at Bob, uh, and what, well, the other thing has happened. There's a, an event happened that, of course, was a part of what my job was, to analyze these things and see 
And these are what you call engineering accomplishments. The Dottie Rotol system, the way they had designed it, if you cut the power on the right, on, the, on one side, you could hit a flip a switch and it would cut the power to the other side, the other engine would shut off. Well, it turns out they had routed this from the right, out through the right engine, back across the wing, out to the left engine, and back to the cockpit. And uh, when you and the, and the co-pilot, our FAA check pilot, got excited, of course, <laughs> probably right after he crapped his pants <laughs> when the when the right tires blew, and he didn't he did not bring the uh, the throttle back to idle on the right. If you did that, you did complete the circuit, so the left engine wouldn't shut down, and the Exhaust gas temperature is just going rolling out the top, and I'm hollering at the pilot. Take, take, the, take the engine, take the left, take the left, take the left, cut it. He finally cuts it. And we pull off, we pack, we're dead, we're completely dead then. We pull off onto a taxiway, and I got out just in time to keep a, uh emergency crew from spraying the glowing red-hot right brake. <laughs> with, with carbon dioxide, <laughs> that guy would have gotten shredded with shrapnel. But I got him stopped at the time. But that's that's the kind of excitement to there when you do when you do that kind of work. And I've had a lifetime of it, and I've enjoyed every bit of it. Yeah, well, that's a, it's an interesting thing. So, on a you know closing note, what was the uh, buffet like at the Sands in '59? What was it, the Sands in 59? The buffet, uh, the food any good? or? It was the Sands. We stayed, we actually, uh, we actually uh, stayed at the Sahara for oh. the full month. I'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, go out and fly all day, go to the shows in the evening, play blackjack for a while, hit the sack for a few hours, and go back and do it again the next day. And at the Sands, they had Joe E. Brown as the featured attraction there. We went and saw him. <laughs> and he told one story that was I've never forgotten to this day. <laughs> so the guy who was all drunk up, <laughs> and he was fly was open, and he looks down. He says, "Ah, well, petite showing." <laughs> See, we got the whole Vegas experience here. All right, well, yeah, we're really uh, we uh, we we would go to a different uh, many different. Many of course, at that, that time, you had like six places out on the strip, and that was it. Right, you didn't yes, have I mean, nothing. There was nothing there. There was no hotel there any taller than three floors. Those, those were the early days. All right. Well, look, we're really long, and it's been a very interesting conversation. But uh, I'd like to thank you for being on, uh, Fred and Gene, for being here. And uh, I would uh, urge everyone to. Get over there to the FMA Direct site, check it out, um, and maybe look for some of the books that you gave us the titles on. Anyway, thanks again, Fred, and we'll talk to everyone soon. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. It was great. Take care. Thanks, Fred. Be safe. Bye-bye.